You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. A lot of spirituality and philosophy is really talks about how do we respond when we run up against what we can't change? How do we respond when life isn't going the way we want? That's a, that's a fundamental principle in a lot of spirituality and a lot of philosophy. And again, this is a time where life is not giving most of us what we want. That was Eric Zimmer, a behavior coach and the host of the One You Feed podcast. He joins me today to discuss the relationship between behavior change and spiritual practices and how the two are especially important right now. We also discuss what to do when you've fallen out of practice with your habits and practices, which is inevitable as long as you're human. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Eric, thanks so much for joining me today on the Productive Flourishing Podcast. I've been really looking forward to this. And before we jump into it, I just want to say, one, thanks for supporting Start Finishing when it came out. I was on the one you feed for the book. And then we also did a um, compilation or we did a, a quick interview. I think it was last week. And I appreciate you um, inviting me there. And now it's your turn to be on um, this podcast. So thanks so much. Oh, you're so welcome. The book, your book is wonderful. I was so happy to have you on. Thanks for that. Um, so I'm actually really interested in your backstory here. Um, a lot of times we get into the type of work that we do as coaches and, you know, things like that. And we all have our different ways in there. But I think your um, entry point into this is especially relevant generally, but also with what we're going through right now. So how'd you get into this? Well, that's kind. Of, I mean, it's kind of a long story, but um, you know, I guess this the place to start would be at 24. I was um, a homeless heroin addict, and um, you know, I had hepatitis C. I was I was dying. Um, I was looking at going to jail for a long time, and so I was sort of under the uh, under the harsh uh, whip of of uh, of necessity was sort of driven into having to think more deeply about how to live a good life you know cuz i clearly didn't know how right i clearly had no skills for for coping with life and so as i got into recovery right that just sort of kicked off sort of a lifelong learning for me about how do our minds work how do our emotions work how do we engage in the behaviors that serve us how do we avoid the behaviors that don't so um i was sort of forced into that at, at a at a somewhat young age at, at 24 and then um, then I went on to have a career in the software world for a, for a good number of years um, then I ran a solar energy company for a number of years and then sort of finally at the you know at the, about six years ago I got the idea to start a podcast called the one you feed uh, largely because I kind of needed it at that time in my life uh, my solar energy company had had failed um, I was in a bad 
bad marriage. And I felt like, you know what? I need to talk to people about what it means to live a good life. Um, and I knew like if I started interviewing people, then uh, I would read their book. And I just know I'd be knew I'd be swimming in these sort of ideas. And so uh, I started the podcast kind of out of that desire. And from there, everything else that the the show has been, uh, the coaching that I do, the, the, the programs that we offer have all kind of grown out of that. Yeah, what I appreciate about that is it, it's sort of it's no longer a secret that being the host of a podcast is a really good way to talk to some really fantastic people and get some sort of free teaching and coaching out of the conversations, right? Um, and right. the other piece that I love that you mentioned about it is it makes you do the homework. It makes you actually like read their work and do some research and figure out who people are. Um, and so there's like all these sorts of benefits from, from doing it, which is one of the reasons why once you start a podcast, it's hard to stop, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, it, 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 with my rather, uh, you know, my goals in the beginning that it would be good for me. And, uh, I wanted to spend more time with my best friend, Chris, who's an audio engineer. We've hit both those goals, you know, 20 times over. So it's been successful from the beginning and in by those standards. Why I like your backstory is... You know, if we're being frank about it, the personal development sort of industry can be one that's really founded on a lot of privilege, um, really founded on people who have a lot of means and, and things like that. When you when you look at so many um, so much of the way that we talk about what we do. Um, but I love that you started from this other side where um, it just reminds us that personal development, spiritual teaching is not just for the privileged few, but it's actually this really great tool for everyone. Yeah, I mean, I, it's important to note that I do come from some degree of privilege, having grown up in sort of a standard middle class, you know, white background. I think I had privilege that enabled me to navigate my recovery circumstances. I had things going in my favor more than others, but I, I sort of effectively tore a lot of that privilege down, I guess. <laughs> and so to your point, yeah, I started from, I started from a, a lower point. And I think it, I, I think that is a good point. I, I think we don't want to lose sight of the privilege that we often have, but, but I'm always inspired. And, and there's lots of stories out there that we can find of people who use these same principles and ideas regardless of where they come from, regardless of what their circumstances or hardships, that these ideas really can work to pull us up and help us to improve our lives wherever we're starting from. But, but certainly some people are starting from much more difficult places for sure. Absolutely. And we'll talk about this in just a minute, but I think philosophy at its best and spirituality at its best is when it's meeting people in the real world and not trying to remove them from their circumstances and not trying to basically have this this um, view of a sage on a hill somewhere that's figured it all out. They They are enlightened and you learn from them as opposed to people who are just in the middle of failing businesses and figuring it out or, you know, in the middle of a global pandemic and then wondering how do we put these pieces together and really show yeah. up? Um, not from the people who are um, not not that there's anything wrong, with people living in monasteries and, and things like that. But like there's a different sort of um, appreciation when you realize that philosophy and spirituality is for living, not from getting away from life. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. And I think that's I. I looked at, you know, I've certainly looked at philosophy and spirituality in the past and tried to apply them in the same way I applied heroin to my life, which was to make everything 
feel fine, but I've learned uh, that that's not really how it works. <laughs> yeah, so I'm really curious about um, that jump from when your marriage was failing and your solar business was failing and the personal development journey you were on at that particular time mm-hmm. that that was a gap from where you sort of are now. So what was going on at the time in that journey and what have you learned over the six years that did really say, you know what, I'm different and better because of those learnings or affirmations or epiphanies? Yeah, I would say it was much less um, epiphanies and learning and a whole lot more application. You know, I, I after a certain amount of time in in this space, in this world, and even not being in it, but just having read heavily in um, spirituality and philosophy and all that from, from you know, even my teen years, you get to a point where very little do I hear and I go, oh my God, I never heard that before, right? What happened is I think that as the podcast began, I got really serious about applying those things. I think there was something there was something about getting on the air every week and talking about these principles if I wasn't actually living them that felt very hypocritical to me. And so in a way, my podcast audience became almost like a giant accountability partner to me. And I, you know, went, well, I can't get on there and talk about how great meditation is if I'm not meditating. You know, uh, I can't talk about how beneficial exercise is for my depression if I'm not doing, you know, so um, I think it was a lot more about application and just just a real depth, you know, continuing to marinate in the same ideas at deeper and deeper levels, you know. And so I, you know, of course, there are awakenings and epiphanies, but they've but I would say it's been more a deepening by really practicing and living these concepts that, that, that would make the biggest difference from where I was then to where I was to where I am now. It was really an application of, of the principles uh, consistently, day after day, week after week, year after year. I'd like to hang out in this pocket a little bit more because this is a common sort of struggle that people have is – all the great ideas, all the great Dharma listenings, or all the sort of things that you'll hear versus the lack of, of practice. And so, if you could be more concrete and tangible, um, you know, you could pick any time slice of yourself versus now versus then, but like, how specifically is your day different after applying it than it was beforehand? That's a great question, and I need to reflect on it for, for a second. Um, you know, I think meditation is 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 an example. It's something that I was an on again, off again meditator since I was eighteen. Um, you know, I, I started at the age of eighteen and went to a transcendental med- meditation class, um, which was quite some time ago. I'm still amazed one existed in Columbus, Ohio, in those days. Um, but I did that. But I was on again, off again. I could, you know, I'd do it for a day, a week, maybe a month, and then I would quit. And so. Um, you know, I started, uh, it's been about six years now that I've been, uh, what I I would consider myself a daily meditator. And by that, I mean, I meditate 90% of every day for the last six years. So that's a big transformation. I went from, you know, very periodic and sporadic to sort of daily meditation. And so that, that's, that's an example. And so part of what happened when I started having people on the show was I was having, 
spirituality people on, but I was also having people who could really talk about behavior change and habit building and how to build routines. And I think you and I sort of occupy some similar terrain here. We sort of veer into both those areas, more a spiritual area, more of a, you know, you're a little bit more work productivity than I might be, but I've been very focused on habit building. And I think learning that stuff, um, really gave me the tools to do these things more consistently. Now, what that's turned into in my life is I think it's just turned into a little bit more uh, well-being, ease, um, a little easier uh, way to find my life through. I mean, I still am somebody who uh, depression has been a companion of mine since I can remember. And it's still it's still a part of my life, but I, I often say I've learned to get way better at being depressed. You know, I uh, my depressions are much more manageable, much uh, they're much less deep, they're less frequent, and they have less duration. And I fret about them a whole lot less. You know, so I think that's a that's an area that has definitely improved as a result of some of these changes for me is sort of my depression and anxiety. I appreciate you going there because um, so often people think that the before and after is like the after is all those things are gone away, right? So you no longer have to deal with them. But time and time again, what we learned is that the intense upswings or downswings of those have shifted, right? So yeah. I know we're talking about flattening the curve when it comes to coronavirus right now, but there's flattening that okay. sort of emotional intensity. Um, unfortunately, it can also be that the intensity of the intense highs can also be flattened a little bit. Um, but, or, mm -hmm. and the intensity of the lows are really, and so for instance, um, like most people, I struggle with, you know, realistic expectations, right? And, and so yeah. I've been really sitting with Richard Rohr here recently. Um, he's got a, a quote that is, it's a, I'm a paraphrase, so, so I don't get beat up for the quote, but it's, um, unrealistic expectations are the root of suffering. Yeah. Right. I still struggle with that. Right. And I imagine I'm always going to, um, at the same time, there's a sort of level of intensity and attachment that I no longer have. Well, like when I realized, Oh, why I'm in this moment feeling this way. Is it two months ago? <laughs> I, I expected it to look this way or I expected the world to be this way and we're no longer there or that didn't happen. And I've been hanging on to that. Um, and if I just let that go or modify that or get real and sit with that, then I can still be frustrated and upset and disappointed. Um, but I'm not stewing about it at two o'clock in the morning. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and further, you know, the quote I've heard that, that resonates with that is, you know, uh, expectations are premeditated resentments, right? Like it's, uh, it, you know, it's our expectations tend to get us into a lot of trouble. Uh, we can't not have them, right? Just as humans, we just, that's not the way the mind works. But the looser we can hold them, you know, the looser we can hold them. And, and, you know, that's a real great example of, of spiritual principles working in life. It's, is to lessen our, our expectations that things are going to be a certain way. Um, because they, they rarely are. And, and I think the other thing that, you know, I often think about when I think about like the improvements that we make and the, the thing is, you know, I often think like, you know, we, uh, I'm interested in in true spiritual awakening, what you might call enlightenment. Um, you know, those things have interest to me, and and yet 
it seems to be that a lot of that is the is the is the dramatic amount of the shift that occurs and i often think that if i could go back to myself at 23 years old living as a heroin addict right and i could take that eric and put him in my brain today he might think he was enlightened because the difference is so dramatic, but we don't notice it is so different because we habituate. We get healthier and we habituate. We get healthier and we habituate. And so that's not a bad thing. Habituation is one of the great characteristics of humans, but it, it does make spiritual growth a little bit of a weird thing because you have these breakthroughs that feel really great and then you sort of get used to it and you go, well, gosh, I need another one. And if we're not careful, we're chasing that high. That's really fascinating because um, you had me thinking of another colleague of mine who has been careful to not make his spiritual practice just another drug. Yes, um, yes. And just to go from heroin to his particular spiritual practice and, and get caught up in the same loop. Um, yeah. in the same, you know, because when you look at it, the community of heroin users um, can be analogous to the community of spiritual practitioners. They, they use totally. like, so much maps, and you have to be careful that you don't end up in that particular place. But what you reminded me of is, um, you know, we habituate, but there's also this hedonic adaptation that we're that's, in. Exactly. Right. That's that's kind of that's the that's what I that's what I mean. In yeah, is that hedonic okay. ab- adaptation? You know, we just we get used to, you know, how we feel how we feel. We get used to how we feel, and what used to make us happy six months ago That's may right. no longer make us That's happy right. or may no longer like make us content or you know, but the other thing about it is we forget that hedonic adaptation works both ways. Right. Uh, so in the moment, and that's part of the things we've been dealing with with COVID is so much it feels like has been taken away from us. So many patterns are changed. It's like, oh my God, we can't we can't go on like this. But the reality is we can and will. Um, That's right. That's absolutely right. Yeah. And so not to downplay any suffering that anyone's going through in this particular moment or has been going through, but hedonic adaptation works both ways. Um, and, and I think that's one of the gifts of being human is that we can, if we sit with it for a little bit and not just keep calm and carry on, that's not all, that's not what I'm saying, but if we sit with it and understand that really where the suffering comes is, um, you know, in this particular moment, I think it's the loss of the illusion of control, mm-hmm. right? We never yeah. had control, right? No. Um, but we felt like we did. We felt like our 401ks, if, you ha- if you're privileged enough to have one of those, said something about what you could expect in the world. We felt like the coffee shop was going to be open tomorrow. We felt like all those things were going to be true. But it's really just the illusion that we've lost, not the act, because we never had control in the first place. That's right. Yeah, I think this has made that very, I think it has really brought the very uh, tenuous nature of existence to the forefront for for a lot of us. Uh, the poet Mark Nepo calls it the terrible knowledge. And the terrible knowledge is that anything could happen to any of us anytime. We just can avoid thinking about that most of the time. And this has made it hard to avoid thinking about. Yeah, it's right in front of us, and so much, so many of our workways have changed. So much, it feels like it's changed. And at the same time, we will be in a new normal or developing that new normal before too long. Um, And speaking of new normals, um, one of the kicks you've been on recently has been 
converting spiritual practices, or it's been integrating the work you've done with spiritual practices and behavior change. Um, and I'm really fascinated about this because a lot of times people will separate those two um, and get um, un- get predictably um, bad results. Yeah. Um, so, tell us a little bit about that thread you're in and, w- and what you've seen and some key things that, that you've learned from the teaching and, and seeing the transformation in people. Yeah. So the the idea is I call it I call it spiritual habits and it's a new program that we've we've launched. And it's really like you said, taking the science of behavior change and applying it to our spiritual life. And the the big gap that I that I not only see but have experienced in my life a lot is we consume a lot of information. We read books about spiritual principles, we listen to podcasts and we go, yes. Yes, I agree. I, oh, yes, that makes sense. It, it inspires us. We feel good during that time. And then nothing really happens with them. And then maybe if we're, if we, if we're good, if we're, if we make an effort at applying, we take it to a, a daily meditation habit, which is a big step. That's great. Get to a daily meditation habit. That can be, that can be the beginning of spiritual habits. But even that, it's like, all right, well, I meditate for 30 minutes a day. What about all the rest of the hours of the day? And so what, what I became really interested in is how do we integrate these principles and these ideas into all aspects of our lives? And so I started looking at a lot of the things that we do in behavior change, right? In behavior change, we talk about taking really small steps, but taking those steps over and over and over consistently. So how can we take, how can we apply spiritual principles over and over and over again, right? There's a there's a spiritual teacher named Locke Kelly who talks about, he uses it, he means it in a slightly different way, but he talks about small glimpses many times, right? So he's saying, instead of looking for a big awakening, just keep getting these little flashes of it over and over and over and over again, right? And so, you know, how can we, how can we do that? How can we, with, um, with behavior change, we know that specificity is really important. When and where am I going to do something? Planning things. We know that reminders are very important. We know how we structure our environment is really important. So there's all these principles that we sort of know from behavior change make it likely that we either will or won't do a certain behavior. So what happens if we apply that to our spiritual life and, um, and, and what happens is we live more deeply into these principles and we embody them more. And the biggest challenge probably of all is the one of forgetting, right? That's the biggest challenge is how do we overcome the forgetting, which is that, you know, maybe I wake up in the morning, I'm like, all right, I'm going to start my day off and I'm going to read something spiritual that, that orients my head and then I meditate and then I just promptly forget about it until the next day. And so the program has different ways of trying to uh, integrate those things. And it really, you know, we start to use things like reflections. We use, um, we use mantras. We use um, reminders of various sorts. Uh, we use a lot of on-the-spot practices. So these are things that we do to embody spirituality that as we go about our day, instead of having to stop and take time away from our day, how do we do, what are things we can do as we're going about our day? I'm really curious about this, and I've sort of alluded to it earlier. A lot of times we talk about spirituality and philosophy, and it seems like stuff you do during the good times. 
um, it seems like things that um, you can get to or that are optional. But really, what is um, why is it so important to have these integrated spiritual practices every day at this particular point in time? Well, I think that it's interesting. Some people approach spirituality and philosophy when it's a good time, but boy, an awful lot of people turn to spirituality when they're in a lot of pain, mm-hmm. right? So I think people get get there both ways, and um, I think that a lot of spirituality and philosophy is this is an this is an oversimplification, but I'll just use it for for a moment. A lot of it really talks about how do we respond when we run up against what we can't change. How do we respond when life isn't going the way we want? That's a that's a fundamental principle in a lot of spirituality and a lot of philosophy. And again, this is a time where life is not giving most of us what we want. You know, it's it, there's a lot of things that we don't want right now. And so I know that for me, um, my both my spiritual practices and the my I'll call them spiritual perspectives. My spiritual perspectives help a lot during this time. And having those sort of top of mind and remembering them is really good. So like here's a classic like there's a this is a spiritual equation that uh, the the Buddhist teacher Shinzen Young once once said and it was that suffering equals pain times resistance. And this is one of these things that I heard it and it was just like, boom, you know, like sometimes people just say something that you've been saying in a hundred words and they say it in four words and that's, that's it. Right. And so there's a lot of pain right now that that we're all experiencing, but it gets so much worse as we resist it. So this idea of not not resisting everything. So much of our life, if we look at it, is I want this, I don't want this, I like this, I don't like this. It's this constant, subtle resistance. And learning to let that resistance drop a little bit. Every every percentage point we drop our resistance to the is, you know, is X even more percentage points that we drop our overall suffering. So so I think that that's a, an example of why these things are so valuable in times like this. It's sort of like we're in this constant tug and war with reality. It's one way we want it to be another. Like it pulls us one way and we're sort yeah. of fighting it the whole time. And the thing about it is, is, you know, as um, Radio had said, of course, they said it about gravity, but reality always wins. Right. Um, <laughs> and, and, and you tug of war with reality long enough. It's going to win. It's got an infinite pool of resources. You don't. Right. 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 Um, and that doesn't mean that you that doesn't mean that we go into a land of sort of um, nihilism or spiritual bypass where it just doesn't matter, right? I think it, you just get more intentional about where you tug and where yeah. you don't. That's right. That's right. I was having a conversation with a client earlier today and we talked about, and this is, you know, phrasing that that you might, you know, that certainly you would be used in the business world a little bit, but it's about focusing on the inputs rather than the outputs, Right. It's about like with her, we were talking about, you know, you get focus on the things that you can, can, can work with and that you can change you. The rest of it is we can't really do something with. So it's like you said, it's not nihilism. It's not giving up. It's not, but it's really, it's really accepting 
what we can change. I often think that the serenity prayer is like the one of the most important things that was ever said, right? Like, <laughs> grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change and the courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. If we can figure that out and we can get skillful at learning what we can and can't change, boy, does life get easier. Absolutely. Now, I'm curious, you mentioned that earlier with your practice that you're like a 90% you know, meditate, not 90% of the days you do daily meditation. I'm, I'm wondering when you fall off the horse, the habit horse, and we all do. Yeah. How are you different than when you were on it? Well, it depends which habits I fall off of and for how long, you know, for a, uh, for a day or so, I'm not much different, you know, um, the, the the one that I'm most sensitive to is if I miss a couple of days of exercise, I start to feel that soonest. That's my more than more than meditation, more than sleep, more than healthy eating, more than anything else. Mine seems to be that something about moving my body, it's the thing that treats my it treats my underlying mental and emotional states better than anything else. So if I, if I miss that for, for several days, I start to, um, it, I, I mainly starts to manifest for me as irritation. I just start to be more irritable, you know, kind of subtly, but, but, but markedly so, you know, that's, that's really, that's sort of the front line for me of not doing well as my irritation starts to peak. And, and then just on the backside of that starts to become um, more of what we might classically think of as depression as, you know, a little bit more, you know, what's the point? Everything sucks kind of, <laughs> kind of mentality. Um, but, but irritation, I think, is the, is the leading edge of it usually. Do you count um, exercise or moving your body as a spiritual practice, or is it a different thing? I do, I think of I I sort of think of um, I sort of I I don't necessarily. I was going to say I often think of things as well-being practices, just to, in general. I don't necessarily distinguish them. Um, and so, you know, for me, the sort of fundamentals that just sort of I've just learned over the years that sort of undergird my support my life are exercise, uh, meditation, eating well, um, sleeping, and really sort of sharing my emotions with others. So, um, so in some ways, all those things are spiritual practices, and in another way, you, none of them have to be if you don't really like that word. <laughs> I love that because um, your exercise was the first thing that you jumped to. So much of our conversation has been about meditation and spirituality and things like that. And so I just found it super interesting that that well-being habit was the first one that you're like, oh, if I miss that for a day or two, then things start to slide. And and the reason I'm pulling that up, and I love that it's um, kind of a um, particle wave sort of thing for you, right? Uh, right. Is that I think... Um, even though I asked a bifurcated question, is it this or that? I think a lot of the um, trouble that we get into is too easily compartmentalizing things. Yeah. And saying like, oh, well, my spiritual practice has to be sitting on the mat, or my spiritual practice has to be prayer, or my spiritual practice has to be some of these types of things, where it's like, actually, your spiritual practice could be 
the way that you show up and go to CrossFit and like what you do in that, like in, in, a, yeah. in a certain way of defining it. Right. And I know there are plenty of cultures where sex has been a spiritual practice, right? Yeah. There's all eating can be a spiritual practice depending on the intention that you put into it. That's right. right? And, uh, and that, go yeah, ahead. no, I think that's, I think the word you use there is the really important one intention. And in the spiritual habits program, the very first module that we focus on is, is intention and attention that, that w- w- the intentions that we bring to things and where we put our attention, those are fund to me, those are fundamental spiritual principles that underlie everything. And my primary spiritual path these days has been Zen Buddhism and Zen Buddhism would point me over and over. And that's why I, it's part of the reason I like it is it points me over and over and over to the ordinary parts of my life points me back every time. It's not somewhere else. It's not somewhere else. It's not somewhere else. It's your ordinary life. Pay attention, pay attention. <laughs> you know, intention and attention. And so, you know, on one hand, you, you know, to me, my, if, if, I'm, if I'm sort of on the spiritual beam, so to speak, right, it informs all aspects of my life. There's nothing that isn't touched by it. I love it. And especially from more of the Buddhist tradition, but like three words, be here now. Yeah. How's that so damn hard? <laughs> well, I don't know, but it is, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that that's oversimplifying the rich tradition of Zen Buddhism, but th- that is one of those practices that you continually have to come be here now. Damn it. Yeah. Right. Yep. Most of our suffering comes from being somewhere else or not yep. being here, so on and so forth. Right. Yeah. Um, it also reminds me, you mentioned four or five things. You mentioned exercise, you mentioned meditation, eating well, sleeping, expressing emotions to other people, right? Um, as sort of your pillars of well-being. Um, and it reminds me of a, one of my favorite lines from the Tao Te Ching, which is the Tao is broad and plain, but -hmm. people prefer side paths. Right. And it's basically saying the way of nature, the way of um, divine alignment, however you want to phrase the Tao, it's really broad and plain. Like it's, it's this road that you can just walk along. There's no real mysteries to it. It's, you know, um, but for some reason, we prefer the side paths. We prefer to take the zigzags and make things more complicated than it needs to be than just walking the road. And time and time again, so many of the spiritual um, practices, well-being practices come down to like those five, seven things that you just do day to day. And they're not rocket science, um, but they make this huge difference when done day after day, after year, after year, after decade, after decade. Yeah. Yep. They do. And that's, that's really the, that's really the, the key. A lot of this is it's a deepening, right? It's just this constant practice of deepening. And, and that happens by, you know, um, by over and over. And so I say, when I say I'm a 90% meditator, right, it's, it's probably a little upwards of that. But when I work with coaching clients, I say like, that's what we're shooting for. With the behavior, we're shooting for 90% adherence. And if you can do 90%, like you said, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, your life will transform. But if you shoot for 100%, for most of us, that's where we give up. That's we go. I can't do that. I I I met. I missed two days. See, I'll never do it. And so for me, the the plus of ninety percent means I could miss thirty six days in a year, 
right? Which for a lot of us, if we miss three or four days in a row, we go, the whole thing's, we're, we're screwed. The whole thing's pointless, right? And uh, uh, this is an example of a, 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 you know, a spiritual principle of perspective, right? By broadening out perspective, we see things better. And, and so, of course, we get off the path. The path may be broad, but and we end up wandering off of it, which is fine. The key is to just get back on it with the minimum amount of drama. Yeah, I tell people like similar things when it comes to falling off of whatever productivity system they're using or whatever sort of habit system that they're using. Because inevitably, what I found is after about three weeks, life starts to creep back in, habits start to erode, like things start to change. And every time like I make it to three weeks and then I fall off and it just won't work. And I'm like, See, I think the thing is, is you're expecting a one-time change, right? Mm -hmm. The whole point of so many of these systems is not how long you stay on, but how quickly you get back on once you fall off, because you inevitably will fall off. Amen. You're, you're just going to fall off. And so, if that's your goal, like, how can I remain 100% consistent? How can I do this forever? Like, nothing is going to work. That's right. And I think what happens is when we fall off, we that brings in because the, because a lot of people come to personal change with lots of failure in their past and there's an underlying narrative that says i'm the kind of person who sticks with things for 3 weeks then i quit mm -hmm. that's the underlying narrative and so when we do our 3 weeks and we start to fall off our brains go see i knew i couldn't do it see i, I i'm just i'm not built that way i'm not i'm not like charlie you know i can't charlie can stick with it but i and, and it's that's all an underlying narrative that's just not true. We get off track, we get back on. And that's, I used to do coaching with people a month at a time. And by and large, I have stopped doing that in general because it simply, I, I felt like I moved to six months because what I needed to see was people, I work with people as they get off the path, get back on, get off, get back on, learn to minimize that time off and get back on. And that's where a coach can be really helpful and sort of like, no big deal, right back on, no big deal, right? Sort of. And so, yeah, it's inevitable that, that whatever planning system or whatever we put in place, we're not going to be perfect at. We have to, we have to expect that and, and know how to adapt quickly. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, when you said you, you went month to month, I, I first thought you meant that you only worked with a client once every month. I was like, oh no, that's, that would be really hard mm. in the type of work that we do. Yeah. <laughs> just, no, yeah, no, no, but no, but no, you clarified there. So um, have you read uh, Marshall Goldsmith's Triggers? I have. Yes. All right. The reason I bring this up, and I, I want it for our listeners too, is one of the sort of um, epiphanets that I got from that book. Not not like full epiphany, but epiphanet. <laughs> That's a right? great word. Um, was when he talked about how he asked his clients how much effort they put towards going towards a particular goal. Right. So instead of saying whether you did it or didn't do that particular habit or behavior, yes, how much effort on that day did you put behind it on the scale of zero to ten? Mm -hmm. um, and I. Once I read that, thanks, Marshall, um, I started using it with my clients as well because they'll come to, you know, the story like, oh, I didn't do it and this happened and that happened. And so instead of saying, like, did you do it or didn't, didn't you, it's how much effort did you put behind making that particular goal or that particular behavior happen? And if they tell me three out of 10, I'm like, well, you deprioritized it. What was going on that day? Like, would mm -hmm. you agree with that or like so on and so forth. But like, I think it's a, such a powerful thing for us to remember is like when we fall off that horse, 
And when we do something like one, there's the whole narrative, like you mentioned, the head trash around this is the type of person I am. See, this is what happens. I should be ashamed. I put in all that work. It was going so well, like all the different things, mm. right? That is all basically parasitic motion. It sucks life out of you, but doesn't really do anything for you, right? Yeah. If we were to apply that same amount of energy to saying, you know what? Like, how much effort did I put behind maintaining this system? Is it just that I... It was a Saturday and Sunday, and I went to a mimosa brunch with the, with my girlfriends, and then the day just sort of got a, got away from me, and then there I was. <laughs> well, that's that's happened. That's life, right? Yeah. What I would really be, what's been really interesting in behavior change conversations with clients is like when they're putting in eights, nines, and tens in effort, and the behavior's not changing. Mm. Um, because one, it's really rare that that actually happens. Uh, um it's yeah. usually we're down there like, oh, I kind of, I was going to work out today, but then like this happened and then that happened. And you ask them like, how much effort did you put behind it? And there's like, yeah. not so much. That That's a great, yeah. I often, my, my version of that, and I didn't remember that from, from Marshall's book. My version of that is like, wh what was the internal conversation like? And because often, like you said, it's, it's, it, there almost wasn't one. There almost wasn't one. Something happened that that preempted. It's not like there was this inner battle. It's just that the the it happened almost with with a lot less consciousness. And so that just comes to all right. How are we remembering? You know, and and I always try and delineate with a client. Like, what are we what are we dealing with here? Are we dealing with a forgetting issue? Are we dealing with a planning issue? Are we dealing with something out of your control issue? Or are we dealing with you sort of walked right up to the line, you stared the thing down, and then you went, no, I'm not going to do it. Those are all very different problems, and we solve them very differently. Yeah, it's like on the exercise behavior change, very few people get all the way to the gym, walk in the door, and then decide they're not going to work out. Right. Right? Very rare that that happens, right? Indeed. Usually, it's from couch to putting shoes on, that's the hard part, right? The couch yeah, to making right. the decision that they're like, that's where the narrative is not. And so I, I love that you mentioned, did you get to that line? And I went to the exercise one because it's so tangible, but like you were at the gym <laughs> looking at the equipment, looking at the instructor. and was like, Nope, not going to do it. <laughs> right. 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 It doesn't happen. Um, yep. and so I think when it comes to meditation and prayer, it's a similar thing. Like, did you go to the, to the seat <laughs> where yeah. you, where you meditate or pray, right? Did you open the book? Did yeah. you do any of that stuff? And if you got to the point where you opened the book and you're like, nope, not going to do it, that's a completely different conversation than right. you didn't even go into the room. Yeah. Well, it makes me think of of BJ Fogg and his excellent work, right? And he says, you know, when you're coming when it comes to troubleshooting behavior change problems, right? He's got this, he's got this formula that says behavior happens when motivation, ability, and prompts. Prompt, prompt can be a trigger, a reminder, when all three of those things come together at the right time. But but he troubleshoots it backwards. I start with like the prompts. Did I remember? Did I, you know, did the time come? Then I look at the ability. Did I have the ability to do it? You know, did, did my schedule line up? And then finally, the last step is to look at the actual motivation, right? A, because that's often not what it is. And B, because it's the hardest thing to actually change. And so you start by working with the easier to modify variables. And that's kind of exactly what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm curious, um, you know, I know we're having this conversation right in the middle of COVID. And so when I ask this, usually we're not dealing with a global pandemic. So setting that aside, 
um, what's the biggest unexpected challenge that you're currently facing and how are your practices helping you overcome it? I think the biggest unexpected challenge I'm facing is I still, and I, I, I stopped working, you know, I did a, I had a full-time job with the podcast for a number of years, but it's been 17 months maybe that I haven't had a full-time job and I'm still a little bit stunned by the adaptation to working, um, by, by myself from my home. I don't I, I I think that has continued to be something that has presented challenges to me in a variety of different ways. Um, I think that that's probably the the biggest and, and it's unexpected because I still feel tremors of it this much later and and I would have expected I would have not felt those. but I think there's just a part of me that still misses. I'm glad I don't have to do it, but a part of me that still misses the the going into an office and working with colleagues. I work with people all day, but I'm coaching them largely. And and albeit those are lovely relationships, they're just slightly different, you know. And so the chance to sort of talk with a colleague like you and I are doing, I don't I don't get enough of, and I miss that more than I think I would. And so I've had to learn to. Uh, adapt to it by trying to um, make sure that I reach out to people and talk to other people. And, and and it's something I have to be conscious of. And when I said sort of sharing emotions with other people, that's part of what I meant was remembering to reach out to people and talk to people that aren't, um, that aren't like clients, you know, that, that, that are, are other people that are, you know, friends and colleagues. What's the what's the internal difficulty there for you? Loneliness isn't quite the right word, but it's close. So let me rephrase the question. Um, is it a? I'll try to paraphrase as much as your work when you're talking about behavior change. Is it like a forgetting thing? Is there a resistance oh. to doing the thing? Um, what what's uh, really oh I the see, blockage I see. for you? Yeah yeah. yeah. Um, it's a forgetting. Yeah, it's a forgetting. It sneaks up on me, I think. I just get busy and I don't schedule it in and it just sort of creeps up on me and then I suddenly go, oh, I haven't I haven't interacted with, and I, my partner's here, so I interact with her. But besides that, I haven't interacted with another person who's not a client in two weeks. You know, it's a, it's a forgetting. It's a remembering to put it on the schedule. Um, and it's an even, sometimes it's just remembering to, to get out. You know, just remembering like, hey, you should, you know, like this is an, another one is like, I know another principle I haven't mentioned or practice that's really core to me is being in nature. And that's one that, that most easily gets put on the, you know, I go in a spurt and I do it a lot. And then all of a sudden I start to forget and I go, geez, Luis, it's been two weeks since I've been anywhere outside of my house or in my car. I really feel you on that one. And for me, like in those scenarios, my wife, Angela, is so good about having these practices and doing them much more. So she's like, hey, do, do you want to go out on a hike? And we've gotten good about it because she knows and I know when she asked me that in that moment, I will not want to do it. I'll be frustrated. <laughs> I like, nope, I want to do the thing. I had plans to sit on this or, or, you know, I have a friend that will ask me like, hey, do you want to go out? And I'm like, no, I don't want to. Yeah. 
But at this point, I'm like, you know what? I will feel better, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. I will feel better. I'll be frustrated now, but I'll feel better from doing it when I do it. And so, um, you know, I'm just super grateful that Angela and I had gotten to the point to where, like, you know, in previous time slices of ourselves, she would get her feelings hurt because I would get frustrated, <laughs> right? And it's like, no, just frustrating. Frustration is my way of getting to the fact that this is something that I need to do. Yeah. Um, and so that's. It's it's been a game changer. Even when I see it come up on my calendar, like I need to reach out to such and such. I'm like, don't feel like it. You know what? Do it. Yeah. You'll yeah. feel better, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Similar sort of thing. Thanks for sharing that because again, you got. I think you mentioned 15, 17 months of working from home by yourself, like in the in the pocket. And I know there are some people who are new to that, and that type of stuff will sneak up on you, yes. right? Where you realize that, like, what is wrong? Like something's missing, and it just turns out it's easy soundboarding conversation with colleagues where it didn't feel like a imposition or a thing. It's yeah. It just happens. It, it just happens. Yeah. Yep. Right. Um, so serendipity and synchronicity are, are harder to create when you're working from your home office. They are. They are. Yep. All right. We've discussed a lot today, Eric, um, as the guest for today's conversation, you get to leave our listeners with either a challenge or an invitation, depending upon what most resonates with you. So based upon what we've talked about, what would you invite or challenge our listeners to do? I would, um, that is a great question. I would invite people to, particularly given the times that we're in, to think about one practice that would improve your mental well-being and start to implement it every day in a very short way. You know, I'd invite you to just look for for something that will that that you know from past experience, or you've heard enough people say, "Oh, that that'll help my mental well being." Implement it in just a small way, but implement it daily now, because I think this is a time where these sort of practices are more important than ever for us. You know, we need we need we all need more support right now than we than we're used to needing. That's just the reality. And 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 a and a a, a well being practice can be part of that support. Eric, this is my third conversation with you. Each one has been a treat. I appreciate this one, and I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much, Charlie. I really enjoyed this. All right, listeners. So you heard it from Eric. What well being practice? can you do over the next week that will make your day and make your life better? And just as a reminder, remember that being, and just as a reminder, remember that rest can be a well-being practice and you may need more of it during these times. Until next time, stand tall and start finishing. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that'll help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.